This is President Ron Herrera, and you are listening to Welcome to Uniontown, a podcast that delves into the everyday issues, iconic leaders, and allies of the labor movement. We get to know the backstories of workers and the journey of leaders, from their first job to their greatest victory. The show covers every aspect of the Los Angeles labor movement, from the desert to the sea. It's Ron Herrera, the president of the Los Angeles County Federation of Labor, as well as an international vice president for Mr. Hoffa and the Teamsters. Mr. Secretary, I'm going to uh, call, call you Julian, okay? <laughs> it's a lot more informal. No problem. And, and that's the com- kind of conversation that, you know, uh, Brother Hugh and I want to have with you. We wanted to uh, welcome you to our podcast Welcome, Secretary Great. Castro. I'm Hugo Romero, the political coordinator here at the Federation, and a longtime fan of yours, a uh, long time in the making, and uh, we, we're just very thrilled to have you with us today. Yeah, thank you all very much for the invitation to be with you. Hope you all are staying. I assume that you're staying warm if you're over there in Southern California. Well, you'd be surprised. You know, it's like 60, but we're still wearing our big jackets and what have you. <laughs> <laughs> So don't, don't underestimate our ability to, to have the right to be cold. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, we, you know, we, we were, uh, were thankful for your time. I mentioned that I, uh, I'm a big fan, and that really started in 2012 at your DNC speech. I want to read the exact quote. I won't forget when I was, uh, when I was watching it. Uh, it. You read, in the end, the American dream is not a sprint or even a marathon, but a relay. Our families don't always cross the finish line in the span of one generation, but each generation passes on to the next the fruits of their labor. My grandmother never owned a house. She cleaned other people's houses so she could afford to rent her own, but she saw her daughter become the first in her family to graduate from college, and my mother fought hard for civil rights so that instead of a mop, I could hold this microphone. So for context, at the... At the time, you know, I, I was undocumented. So for an undocumented kid figuring out how to finish college on the eve of uh, just months after President Obama had uh, been organized by immigrant youth into making DACA reality, I can't tell you what that meant to me, right, in terms of seeing you on that stage, sharing your story, your family's story, and, you know, thinking uh, things are tough, but as long as I can pass the baton, as long as maybe my kids could be Secret- Secretary Castro on that stage it, and just seeing you, it, it was an inspiration and a huge moment for me. I, I told my friends, I was like, I'm going to tell, tell them you made me cry and make them pay for it. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> no, and Thank you very much for saying that. It means a lot to me. Yeah. So, you know, I, I just wanted to share that. And. You know, eight years later, I, you know, I want to ask you how you see the evolution of that speech and where you think we've, uh, we've, con- we've passed the baton well in those eight years and maybe where we've dropped it and we need to pick up and, and reimagine where we go to, to leave a stronger world and a stronger environment and 
workplaces and unions for the next generations, especially for folks of color? Well, that that um, speech really was intended to offer hope and the power of an example that I think represents so many families over the generations of people who have come from different places and have worked very hard and have had their opportunity to reach the American dream, however they define that, you know. Some people define that very narrowly, owning a house, uh, owning a car, being financially okay. Uh, you know, I've always defined it a little bit more broadly than that and finding happiness in other ways and serving other people. But I think the speech gave me an opportunity to tell my own family story. And as the first Latino to keynote a democratic a national convention, it was especially meaningful uh, to tell the story of my grandmother who had come from Mexico when she was about seven years old and worked very hard, but never reached what people would consider the American dream, but then got to see my mother, her, her only daughter, go further than she had and then see Joaquin, my brother Joaquin and me, go even further. Um, I think it represents the hope of a lot of families today. That time in 2012 was a more hopeful time than we went through recently with the Trump administration. Um, and, he, you know, and I think Vice President, or President Biden and Vice President Harris are providing a lot of hope now. It's also true, though, that for the last year, our country has found itself in in rather dark times. We need to peel back a lot of the bad stuff that was done over the last four years uh, and get out of the, the challenge that we're in right now with this, with this pandemic. And then I think make sure that we do those things that we were talking about back then, investing in education, investing in job opportunities, investing in uh, better pay for workers um, tackling things like climate change so that everybody can have their shot at the American dream. Let me tell you a little personal story. Uh, one of your first trips out to Los Angeles, uh, you spoke at a high school. And then I started thinking, here's a young, I'm going to call you Chicano, okay? Here's, because I'm from that era, I'm from your mother's era. Um, here's a young Chicano who uh, had the courage to step forward nationally and make a run at, at the presidency. Uh, I had no other alternative but to attend. So um, I got a, uh, the opportunity to speak to you prior to you, you know, uh, taking the stage. Uh, and I told you that I came that, you know, that morning out of respect uh, out of admiration, and I thought that it was very important for a labor leader like myself to show you the respect that you deserved. And respect means a lot to me. Loyalty means a lot to me. And you project that. And I know that it came through the foundation of your grandmother and your mother, uh, a lot like me. Tell us a little about that influence and how the two dynamic women in your life uh, influenced you and your brother to be the leaders that you both are. You know, I, I uh, my last name is Castro. Castro was my grandmother's last name. 
And of course, it's my mom's last name. I kind of have a matrilineal <laughs> um, surname uh, because my grandmother brought up my mom uh, as a single parent with the support of an extended family, but as a single parent. And my mother brought up my brother and me largely as a single parent. Our parents split up when we were about eight. And um, what, what I grew up with was these two strong women, very different from each other. My grandmother was traditional, was a traditional Mexican woman. She would still wear a veil when she went into church to mass. She said the rosary. Uh, she was not interested or involved in politics. She never learned how to drive a car. My mother was a hellraiser. She had grown up in, in Catholic school all 12 years and then gone to a Catholic university. But she was the opposite from my grandmother in terms of being uh, just geared toward trying to make change, trying to make waves. She started as a young Democrat, college Democrat, and then got involved in the Chicano movement in the late 60s, early 70s. She was a county chair of Bear County, which uh, includes San Antonio, for the Rasunida Party, which folks may remember was a third party that at the time said that neither Democrats nor Republicans were doing a sufficient job of investing in and seeing that the interests of the Mexican-American community in the Southwest was met. And, you know, and the West, they ran candidates in California, Colorado, Texas, and so forth. But that was my mom. I mean, she was outspoken. Um, she was trying to make change in the community. And my brother Joaquin and I grew up with this sense that whatever you do, you need to find a way in your life to make sure that other people are lifted up too. That it's not enough to just do well and make your money. You know, that you, you need to use part of your life to actually benefit other people. And so for me, the influence of both of these these women was, um, you know, to, to try and work hard, uh, to be respectful, but also to try and make change and make things better beyond just for me or for my family. That's wonderful. I almost wonder if you uh, plagiarized Ron's life and uh, my life, right? Because I, I think you have that in common with Ron and myself, and maybe it's a broader thing, right? And I, actually, I know it's a broader thing where God bless the women in our lives, right? They're strong, resilient, and have put up with a lot uh, and continue to be Absolutely, the yeah. women of color, continue to be the leaders uh, of this country. You know, I see it in your leadership, uh, Mr. Secretary. I, I see it in how you ran your principled campaign. You elevated issues uh, that no one wanted to talk about. You, you know, you took... you. You forced some uncomfortable conversations for the party that needed to be had and were a long time coming. And just yesterday, even, you asked the party to have some resolve in how they approach uh, immigration reform. Because, as you know, and as you mentioned, the last four years, and, you know, if we're really being real, the last 20, over 20 years have been terrible for the immigrant community. And now's the time to make right for immigrants that have endured uh, deportation and exploitation and so much more that we know about. Uh, I wanted to ask if you could elaborate on what that resolve could look like for 
the democratically controlled Congress and what you would hope to see on the immigration front? What I see is an opportunity right now as we sit here in early 2021 uh, to get major immigration reform legislation finally done. And, you know, of course, I don't have to remind anybody that people have been waiting a long time for that. And it was promised a long time ago. We were on the doorstep of it in 2013 when 68 senators, including, you know, a good number of Republicans voted for immigration reform. Now, it was it was different then and less than what we would want now. But but that legislation, uh, if it had been voted on in the House of Representatives, probably would have passed. It hasn't gotten done. But right now, President Biden has an opportunity, I think, because of how bad Donald Trump was on this issue, how cruel his administration was, I would say how un-American um, his administration was. People expect, even if they don't agree with it, you know, even if they don't agree with every single part of that legislation, I think they expect that something big is going to happen on immigration. And because of that, I feel like you have more political latitude, more opportunity there. What does that look like? Well, I mean, it looks like what we've heard a lot of over the years. It looks like providing a pathway to citizenship for the 11 undocumented immigrants who are here, including fast-tracking the Dreamers and their parents. It means uh, making sure that we fix our broken asylum system and legal immigration system. It means peeling back policies like the Remain in Mexico policy. I'm happy to see that President Biden is going to be doing that. And and also, I think, apart from the just legal, technical changes in the law, we need to move away from this idea that, that we haven't invested at all in border security or that our borders are not secure in the first place or that we're going to play this game, putting more unnecessary money into things like a wall in order to secure a little bit better treatment of immigrants to this country, including undocumented immigrants. Right now, I think more Americans understand than they ever have before how hard undocumented immigrants, many of whom are essential workers, 5 million essential workers who are undocumented immigrants, how hard they work every single day, not only to support their own family, but they go to bat for each and every one of us to put food on the table, to make sure that things like restaurants and stores are able to even stay open and stay in business, that construction is able to keep going from fields to meatpacking plants, to fast food restaurants, to grocery stores. They do it all. They are members of this American community. And I think that for the benefit of our country, we need to change the way that we think about them and you know that's not something that you can legislate into being but i do feel like if we make good major progress with immigration legislation that over time that my hope is that that will be one of the byproducts of that with um all that it's happened to latinos this past 4 years your outspokenness your empowerment it's definitely a threat we hear about walls and our children are in in, um, in jail, racism against brown and black people. And we need you to continue to be a national leader. And, and I say that with all confidence 
that you are one of the top Latino leaders in the country, how do we create a coalition between uh, outspoken leaders like yourself, current uh, legislators, and labor? What, what would you like to, what would you tell all of us? What would you like to see in the future? Well, I think that there's a lot of progress that's been made over the last few decades or last couple of decades when it comes to the intersection of uh, labor and concern for immigrants and, and the larger Latino, Latina community and, and people of color in general. As you all know, at one time, that was not the case, right? I mean, labor did not always take well to the idea of uh, inclusion for undocumented immigrants uh, or immigrants in general. I think there's much more agreement that there's a there's an opportunity to work together and that a lot of these these workers, wherever they're working, that they need protections too. And so I think there's a lot of common ground to work on there. Workplace protections, increasing the minimum wage, increasing wages in general, fighting together both on the economic front and then also on, on the civil rights and immigration front. There's a lot of opportunity for synergy there. And so my, my perspective, my advice would just be to continue to forge those alliances. I see them happening all the time. I saw them on the campaign trail when we would speak to different activists and different groups that they're associated with and talk to labor. I have no doubt that there are still frictions that arise, but I do think that those movements are more on the, the same page now than they have been in a long time or ever. I also think that those relationships need to be continued to be established across different ethnic and racial groups. One of the things that's been on my mind lately has been this uptick, for instance, on assaults against Asian Americans. And it reminds me that in many ways, the Asian American community is treated like the Latinx community and that oftentimes it's invisible. It's skipped over or disregarded. And that's unfortunate. It also means that everybody needs to speak up for others, especially during a time of need like this, and that there's opportunity for common ground there. We need to strengthen that from a labor perspective and I think also uh, in the Latino community. You know, just hearing you, I wanna echo Ron's comment about, and just hearing about your immigration answer and, and this intersectional sort of analysis you you just laid out. How much we, we re you're already a national leader but we need you making decisions. And you, you probably get this question <laughs> all the time. What's next? You know, this I know. I know Texas needs a new governor because that guy's out of control. And I knew I know Texas needs new state a senator, U.S. senators. All right, is any of that in mind or, or what's next for uh, Julian Castro? Yeah, you know, I'm gonna keep using my voice and my platform every way that I can on issues that I truly care about. And so, you know, whatever I'm doing, I'm going to continue to, to, to try and help us make progress as a country in the way that I laid out when I ran for president. Right now, I'm really not focused on running for anything. Actually, for the first time in a long time, you know, I got into politics when I was 26 years old. I ran for city council 20 years ago now. In fact, this May, it'll be 20 years since I first got elected. I'm not very likely to run in 2022 because I feel like I just went through the marathon of this 2020 race. First, 
in my own campaign and then after that uh, supporting others you know up and down the ballot through people first future but then after that i'll, I'll look around and and um think through you know how i best think i can make a contribution i've always had an interest in public service but at the same time it's weird you know i lost a mayor's race the first time i ran for mayor i lost when i was 30 years old and about a year after that i realized i didn't miss it you know i had been on the city council for a few years and like i didn't miss it i haven't missed being out of office when i'm out of office and so i'm not necessarily in a hurry to get back in and god willing i'll have a few years i'm only 46 so i have some time to to jump back in if i want to my honest answer is look if you ask do you think that you'll run for something again in the future yeah probably probably but when that's going to happen or what office that's going to be for uh, right now i really don't know the la fed political department support of ron is eager to help you even if we got to drive out to texas I would say in the meantime, you know, my brother Joaquin is in Congress right now. And so I'm living vicariously through him. He's one of these impeachment managers that I'm, I'm watching every day as he gets up there and, and makes great case and makes me very proud and, and hopefully a lot of other people. I, all, I believe that I believe in social economics through collective bargaining and the uplifting of people. And in this case, you know, we were talking about Latinos, and I think it we can actually achieve, you know, higher living standards through workplace standards, wages and benefits. With that said, what is the way forward for black and brown unity? How do you see a future collaboration and working together to uplift uh, minorities, including women. The ability of communities of color to work together is absolutely essential for all of us to prosper in this country. And I think it starts with the leadership, people in office, whether it's public or private or nonprofit leaders who are setting an example, working together, a black, brown, a male, female, forming coalitions. And there's a lot to work on right now. I mean, we just we spoke about, of course, everything related to wages, workplace benefits and protections, civil rights, voting protections and access, making sure that people have the opportunity to get a good education in this country. I mean, we've just been reminded during this pandemic of the severity of the digital divide still, especially in black and brown communities across this country and in rural communities with, with poor white. So we have on display during this pandemic how vulnerable a lot of people are, but that should also provide an impetus for us to coalesce. It starts with the leadership modeling how we do that. And then I think, I know, of course, people at an everyday level have to do that. And in urban communities, especially across this country, whether it's LA or it's my hometown of San Antonio or you know Chicago or wherever it is, the fact is that black and brown communities often live right near each other, either in the same neighborhood or adjacent neighborhoods. They go to a lot of times, they go to the same schools. They work side by side in a lot of these workplaces, too oftentimes not paid what they should get paid. So there's a lot of common experience that should lend itself to coming together better. Absolutely. And we actually have I completely agree with that. And we have... Uh... 
several unions here that are part of the Federation that have done just that, Mr. Secretary, in terms of, you know, the workforce they represent and really advocating for, one, their intersectional issues, but also educating both black, brown workers on black issues and black workers on brown issues uh, and on the collective issues. And uh, we have several affiliates that have done a fantastic job at that. Uh, we're also very proud of your brother leading the impeachment of treacherous president and among other things and being uh, one of the impeachment managers. I gotta say, I really admire also the report you guys have <laughs> with each other. I always wonder, I'm like, this is the joke that went too far. This is this has got to be the one where, who, <laughs> yeah. where Julian <laughs> texts him. He's like, hey, bro, <laughs> delete that tweet. <laughs> that one went too yeah, far. I, I've, I've had like one or two of those that he's put out there. You'll know when <laughs> you'll know when I'm not, you know, when I didn't take it well, when I don't respond at all. Because <laughs> hmm. uh, because the response came in, in a, yeah, a text message to him instead of a tweet back. <laughs> it, it, it's really fun to watch. And so I'm glad I was on the money where I'm like, oof, this one was the one that went too far. I know we're almost out of uh, a time, so I want to get to the, to the most controversial question you may have ever been asked, which is Whataburger or In-N-Out? I know you came to LA, so yeah. you've had, so you've, You've, I have had, yeah. You've had to have had In-N-Out, and of course you've had Whataburger. What's the, uh, what's the answer? I gotta go with Whataburger. Oh. You know, I grew <laughs> up on it. I love it. It's based here in my hometown of San Antonio. I like In-N-Out, though. I have to say, um, I like In-N-Out, and you know the place that I remember is not a burger place, but that I always remember from out there is Del Taco, oh. <laughs> which I think is like like a knockoff of Taco Bell or something. But I once went to <laughs> Del Taco like at 2 in the morning or something. It was near, near USC. I think it was near the USC campus. It wasn't that late, but it was oh, pretty late. That is so uh, funny. But yeah, I, I always love getting out there to California. In fact, my wife, Erica, uh, on more than one occasion has encouraged me to look over there like, hey, you know, she'd love to, to live in San Diego or in L.A. or something. But uh, y'all have a great community over there. But I got to go with Whataburger. All right. Well, we'll agree to disagree on that. You almost had a perfect score in this interview. <laughs> next time. Next time. <laughs> well, we're, we're out of time here. I just want to thank you for coming on, spending time with us, spending time with Los Angeles. Personally, I, it's very important to me to have the Los Angeles labor community hear you, hear your views, get to know you a little better. And know on a personal note, I've had a couple of opportunities to speak to you. Uh, you're definitely someone that's up and coming. Don't give up. I expect you to run for office again for our community because you represent all the good that young people of color, Latinos, blacks, you know, uh, need in this country. Keep up the good work, keep up the outspokenness, and always remember that Chicana activist that uh, raised you and what she expects you to do for, you know, our community. Thanks, Julian, appreciate it. Absolutely, thanks to both of y'all. Thank and, you. Uh, look forward to keeping in touch. Take care. We look forward to it. This has been an, an honor. And again, thank you for, for everything, for everything you've done over the, your career and everything you did in the presidential election and, and what it meant to a lot of us to see you up there. Thank you. We'll keep it up.
Take care. Okay. Take care, y'all. This is a union town, a union town, all down the line. This is a union town, a union town, all down the line. This is a union town. Hey, this is President Ron Herrera thanking you and my co-host, Brother Hugo Romero, for joining us on this episode of Welcome to Uniontown.